This podcast is brought to you by United Bank, the community bank of the nation's capital. This is Let's Have a Drink, a podcast from BizNow Media, where we grab a drink with the people who are shaping real estate in and around Washington, D.C. I'm Ethan Rothstein, BizNow's East Coast editor. Today, we're sitting down with Melina Cordero, the Managing Director of Retail Capital Markets at CBRE. I'm not going to go with my standard drink, mm. which, if you need to know, yeah. for the purposes of this podcast, is a vodka gimlet. But since we're at the Eaton, I'm going to go with a, a classic Eaton that I like. The classic Eaton? ginger carrot. Two of those, please. Thanks. We are at Eaton, D.C. on K Street. The Eaton, which opened last year, is a new hotel with co-working space, a wellness center, coffee shop, a restaurant, and two bars, including Allegory, the lobby bar where Molina and I are sitting, which serves wellness-focused cocktails. Today, Molina leads a team of more than 100 retail sales and debt brokers. Until recently, she was CBRE's first head of retail research. But the Prince George's County native took a long, winding road to get here. She went to New Jersey for high school, studied French at Yale, then went to graduate school for urban planning in Paris and London. It was super fun, uh, really different sort of educational academic setting, uh, but also really different perspectives on everything, not just academics, you know, what's, how is retail viewed? How do people shop, consumer attitudes? Um, and as part of that study program, I ended up going to Brazil for about a month and a half and studying shopping center development down there, which mm-hmm. at the time, Brazil was, and Sao Paulo specifically, uh, the highest rate of retail shopping center construction in the world. Mm-hmm. So there was something going on down there that I thought was interesting. Thank you. Oh, wow. We just got our drinks, which are Thank very <laughs> a carrot uh, garnish here, very fancy. Anyway, Artistic, cheers. architecturally designed, yes. and delicious. Thank you. <laughs> exactly. Mm. Very on brand. Yeah, for sure. And nutritious. Is... There's vitamin C in there. Yeah, yeah, no. Literally vegetables <laughs> on the drink. <laughs> uh, so Sao Paulo, Brazil had the highest rate of shopping centers in the world. Yeah. Or, mm, and that centers. was really fascinating because there uh, really caught me by surprise the how people were using, how consumers were using shopping malls at the time. It was really, it wasn't just for shopping. This was a community space. This was a safe space in neighborhoods where there's a lot of crime, a lot of urban crime. Um, this was where people went to hang out. This is where people took their families on weekends. This is where people went on dates. I mm-hmm. met two separate people, strangers, that mm-hmm. I was interviewing over the course of these, this assignment uh, who had been proposed to in a mall. And, you know, a guy got down on his knee and said, look, I see us coming here for dinner on Friday night. I see our kids playing in the kids' zone mm-hmm. in the middle of the mall. You know, and there was this whole romantic proposition around the mm-hmm. mall. Um, so fascinating to see how different these spaces, um, the different roles these spaces play in our lives across mm-hmm. the world. Uh, so that's my justification for, for fleeing the country for a couple of years to study stuff. When she finished her studies, Molina got an internship working for a member of British Parliament, then worked for a consumer products research firm. After a year, she moved on to Path Intelligence, a startup that focused on retail data analytics. A lot of my job in that space ended up not just selling this technology or understanding the data, but was almost evangelizing mm-hmm. the use of this data to the industries. So, I mean, this was information that nobody had ever really had before. And highly valuable. Highly valuable, but also quite expensive, right? So 
the whole industry wasn't used to setting aside vast sums of money for data and technology at this point. I think retailers have always been super advanced in, in investing in analytics, uh, analysts, data scientists, and more and more and more. Uh, but on the ownership side, that was sort of a lesser priority. And so even just talking operationally and tactically, the, the sort of budget, the appetite for that kind of stuff wasn't quite there. So a lot of my time was spent explaining the power of this data and what it could do. And it's funny because, you know, only five years later, it's really exploded as super mainstream. And owners and investors are, are putting a lot of money and attention towards these, these kinds of data points, which is great. The, the trope is, you know, real estate's behind the times on technology, real estate, and now it's like completely flipped. Mm -hmm. And now the trope is real estate used to be behind the times on technology, uh, but now everyone's spending money and buying up, uh, you know, buying up different startups. Yeah. PropTech Unicorns is upon us now. And now it's like, where where do I invest? What's the next new one? Mm -hmm. What you know, should I put all my eggs in this basket, or how do we put? What's going to happen? Uh, and there's so much more that will develop that we can't even anticipate. Mm -hmm. But that's, it's almost a new function of all of these companies. You have to have groups and people dedicated to staying on top of this stuff. It's going to be even more and more critical as we move forward. As I understand, Path Intelligence shuts down. Yeah. You're looking for, looking for a job. How did that turn into all of a sudden you're leading retail research for the Americas for the biggest commercial real estate services firm in the world? Fabulous question. Um, they called me, actually. <laughs> you know, was a, they had hired this recruitment firm. I think they had been searching for a while for, for the right fit. I think what, what CBRE was looking for was arguably quite, quite different than, than maybe a standard research position. Uh, and, and this role didn't exist before, right? So this was a newly created role that within the research department, uh, the research team had typically been focused on markets. So you had uh, teams organized looking at data and research around the Mid-Atlantic or Washington DC or Los Angeles, but not really sector focused as much. So uh, as things were developing, and there's really a recognized need for sector expertise. And so they had that in industrial, they had that in uh, multifamily, in office, and they wanted to have that in retail. It's consumers and it's data, it's trends and it's science, it's um, real estate fundamentals, but also a little bit of consumer psychology. And it's such a, a mix of stuff. And really what they wanted was someone who, who had a little bit of the consumer, a little bit of retailer, a little bit of owner, investor, um, and a lot of client facing. So they didn't want someone to come in and just write reports behind a computer all day. They really wanted someone who could be educating, who could be talking with clients and, and, and educating the industry about what's next. Well, you're no longer the head of CBRE Retail Research. Uh, you're the CBRE head of Capital Markets. So what was, how did that transition happen? What was the decision there? Because, I mean, you're not a broker by trade. Right, it wasn't on my radar, but um, the company approached me and said, hey, you know, with everything going on in retail, uh, we really think this industry is changing. We really think what the client needs are, uh, are changing and what, what this group needs in a leader is changing and, and we think this could be a great fit. And I thought it was, I, I rarely Probably say no. Scary. <laughs> super scary, yeah. super scary, because it's so different. And I was really enjoying the research role. There was so much more to do. Uh, there, there will always be more to do in that space. But this was such, a, such an exciting opportunity to sort of stretch 
my muscles in another part of the retail world. And a part of the retail world, I think that that needs a lot of attention and needs a lot of that education as well. Because it, if I think about it, it's a super sophisticated, super complicated uh, asset class and, and approach, right? Investing in retail assets, it's a big deal. And you've got pension funds and hedge funds and major banks and private equity, and these are big players. But a lot of times they're quite removed from the day-to-day of operating a shopping center or dealing with a retailer. So they're viewing the headlines closer than they are the day-to-day. And so with them, I saw the biggest disconnect between what's happening on the ground and what's what's being written about or what's perceived. And that, for me, was the opportunity, um, was being able to sit with this type of client, this type of investor audience, and say, hey, if you want to be ahead of the curve, you got to think outside the box. What have you learned about it in your two months? Um, maybe that surprised you about mm-hmm. just like kind of the day-to-day of being a broker, being on your team, or you know, even maybe more big picture, just like, and this is, I didn't realize that this job meant this. So many surprises. I've been running around for the past two and a half weeks, spending time with the different teams across the country, um, spending time with the clients. And I think that the biggest surprise is not so much a surprise, but it's still that, you know, we, we read what's in the headlines. That affects our our boss's sentiments, right? If you're an investor, you're thinking about your clients that are providing you the funds. And so there's this constant need to address the headlines, but also combat that, right? And I think that's been the biggest takeaway so far uh, is how much you've got data on the ground, you've got case studies, you've got proof, you've got evidence, but the strength of those perceptions and headlines, it's there, it's really strong. And I think the sentiment it can impact investor actions almost as much as actual data and analytics, which is the challenge at the same time that it's the opportunity. When we spoke in 2016 when you were first hired, I'd ask you to, I think, point out three trends. I just went back because I wanted to see this. And they were placemaking, technology and data, and clicks to bricks. Okay. Uh, You ask your average retail person to pick up three trends today, They might pick out all three. They might pick out two of those three. I mean, it seems like so much has changed mm-hmm. in those three years. At the same time, you know, those still feel very much, mm-hmm. if you ask them what's going on now, that's what's, what's happening now. Yeah. So, to, I don't know. To me, that that's just interesting that, you know, so much has changed, and yet what, are, what we view as the best practices, the most cutting-edge things, still pretty consistent. From that. Yeah, yeah. I would argue that. 100%. I'd say fundamentally the same things, but then the tools that we have or retailers have or owners have to address those things have changed, right? So if you take that Clicks to Bricks example, mm-hmm. that was the trend when we talked three or four years ago. Yeah, Warby Parker, I think, had opened their first store. Yeah, now look at them, right? Yeah. You go walk down to Georgetown in D.C. or Shaw and chock full of them. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, the Clicks to Bricks trend has shifted a little bit in that it's, it's really... It's grown, first of all. Retailers are all trying to figure out the logistics puzzle, the last mile puzzle. Uh, that's really the missing piece in, in making omnichannel work. That's the most expensive piece. That's the piece no one can really figure out yet. Um, and it's about profitability. I think in the beginning we thought Clicks to Bricks might be a, a, a small trend that would grow, and now it's it's sort of a, oh no, this is this is omnichannel. You have to have both. You can't just do one. Well. 
Um, America works both ways, online and, and both. Yeah, absolutely. And so it's mainstream. And a lot of that, again, goes back to profitability. I mean, I haven't found uh, an online-only, a pure online-only retailer that really turns a, a profit in a meaningful way. And so real estate, you know, they're coming back to that. And at the same time, I think the big established brick-and-mortar players are also coming back to their real estate. You mentioned the last mile, which to me is so fascinating. All right, now that you're dealing with capital markets, I mean, do you have to think of, I mean, do you have to think about the industrial play as well? It's happening. We're definitely doing it. So what we would call our sort of omni-channel practice, and de facto in the research role, I became a pseudo-industrial expert by accident, right? Clients are asking, if you're thinking about investors who are investing in both or who are investing in just one, but so much of what's happening in e-commerce and retail is, is creating growth opportunities in industrial, as we know with the last mile facilities, et cetera. You're welcome, industrial. Um, <laughs> you're fine. so welcome. They're fine. Uh, and so, yeah, we have to know both. And, it, and it's funny, we just spent some time with a client last, a major investor client last week, and we brought our industrial team and our retail team. And we had a, a full, you know, two-hour discussion about what is omni-channel, what is grocery, how is that impacting this sector and that sector, where do we see it going, how do we see it evolving? And that was a super powerful conversation because, to your point, we absolutely need to understand both because they're so intertwined. Do you think we're going to start to see some of these, maybe like ex-urban, suburban shopping centers that are really struggling now, like the malls? start to see more conversions? We've seen quite a bit in, well, rural suburban markets in Ohio and the Midwest, places where there are strategic distribution points for a large format, you know, mall conversion to distribution center. Uh, we've seen that in a couple places, definitely in the Midwest a lot. Uh, there's one in New Jersey I can think of as well, kind of strategically placed to distribute, obviously, to super high density urban mm -hmm. conurbations, if you will. Um, but, you know, as it gets closer and closer to the population centers, that's the sweet spot because that's where retailers want to be and then that's where, uh, from the industrial side, you want to be to distribute. Uh, that's also where it's the most expensive. So one of the questions, dynamics, we talk about it a lot is as industrial gets more and more and more and more expensive, what does that do for the, the relative economics of using an industrial space to distribute versus a retail space? It used to be much cheaper to just take an industrial space, but now that may be shifting. Well, yeah, and I mean, and that's the thing in New York that's going on right now is there's such a demand for last mile industrial. But you talk to land, you know, landlords they don't want to sell really to industrial buyers because, you know, how much can you really justify paying for an industrial space? I mean, obviously it's more now than it was, mm -hmm. and like you said, I mean, mm -hmm. it's going up. But you know, even two, three years ago, those last mile plots in Long Island City, Brooklyn, just would not go to industrial users because they can't pay as much as someone who's put it in an apartment building right. or, or something. And the same thing's going on in DC. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's really no inner beltway industrial market to speak of in terms of like lots of deals happening. And yet we know that DC has a highly affluent, uh, very mm -hmm. young relative like population that is ordering tons of stuff online. Yeah. So why, I mean, I'll just put you on the spot. Why haven't we seen, is it just the land cost? We, why we haven't seen more of this you know, industrial boom? Or is it just maybe brick and mortar retail still doing pretty well in this area? Yeah, absolutely it's doing well. It's, it's cost, like you're mentioning. And it's also that the retail is doing well. I mean, I think if you look at where population is growing, the population in the U.S. continues to urbanize, right? So we're all moving towards metro areas more and more, uh, but we're densifying in the suburbs most. So it's really fascinating. Since the recession, we've all been talking about 
the move to downtown and the move towards the urban cores and baby boomers and millennials, everyone wants to be in the city. But since about 2012, 2013, that's really shifted and the growth is higher in the suburban rings than it is downtown. Uh, and that's true in a lot of major cities across the US. And so what that's doing is creating that densification in the suburbs, the retail opportunities, there's also very limited levels of new retail construction going on across the country, which means that population's growing. Retailers are focusing on quality over quantity, so they're all chasing after the same locations and the same assets, and there's no new supply to meet the rising demand. So when you look at retail fundamentals, especially in markets like DC, especially in markets like Philadelphia, LA, um, rent is still growing, availability is going down, and the fundamentals are there. So there's not a, a need to go in and replace retail stores with industrial space quite yet. Coming up, Melina talks about the recent string of retail bankruptcies, cutting-edge retail technology, and she answers the question, is Amazon too powerful? What makes United Bank the community bank of the nation's capital? United Bank puts their customers and communities first. That means listening before developing solutions and aligning their approach with your goals. Combine that with extensive local knowledge and a focus on personal relationships, and it's no wonder Washingtonians choose United Bank. Bankwithunited.com. Member FDIC, Equal Housing Lender. All right, so I do want to get to some of the headlines that you referenced, the negative headlines. I believe 2019 was at some point like on pace for the most retail bankruptcies uh, this century. Sure. Certainly. I think 2018 or 2017 had more retail bankruptcies than at like the peak of the recession. Mm -hmm. um, so obviously there are a lot of new retailers that are growing, but you know, they're not all the same. But is there, are there any hallmarks of these retailers that are going bankrupt, like these trends of like, maybe not predict the next specific retailers going bankrupt, but it's like, these are the type of retailers that are really struggling. Yeah. This is their business models, this is where they've gone wrong. Yeah. So there were a lot of headlines in the first quarter of 19, and we're talking exactly about that, right? Um, record number of closures, bankruptcies, et cetera. Yes and no, and I would say about that list, if you look at that list, and you can Google it, right? I won't name and shame, but no one gasped and no one shed a tear, right? Like, there weren't really any surprises. There's not really any major brands that people are really going to feel are leaving a gap in the marketplace. Well, one, I would challenge that with Toys R Us. Okay, that I was think. the one that Toys I had an emotional attachment to. Yeah. I agree. And that one happened in a, all of a sudden Toys R Us is gone. Yes, yes. Now, there are some common threads around these quote-unquote failures. Um, if you take something like a Toys R Us, uh, I think it, it could have been a great brand. You know, I think they had some financial operational challenges. Um, Omnichannel was a challenge for every retailer in terms of, of cost structure. So the whole Omnichannel thing created a whole new bucket of costs for retailers. And those retailers that weren't financially stable enough or didn't have the margins or the management structure to adapt to that uh, did face some struggles. So that's part of what's faced a lot of these companies. Um, in a lot of cases, they, they maybe were over-retailed and didn't adapt quickly enough. Um, in some cases, they just didn't react swiftly enough or they couldn't financially. So there are different reasons. There's a lot of private equity participation in this, right, and their approach to growing or uh, a, a company can impact how they were able to adapt to Omnichannel. Mm -hmm. 
Um, Toys R Us, I, I maybe did shed a little tear for that one because I, you know, I grew up with Toys R Us. Yeah. Uh, a lot of us did. Yes, um, certainly. But it's not necessarily over for them. You know, we keep talking about a revival. I do still think, I genuinely believe there's a space in the market right now for uh, a really dynamic brick and mortar toy player. Mm-hmm. Truly will have to be omnichannel, but if you look at the sort of FAO Schwartz is trying to come back, you know, they talked about KB Toys trying to come back, yeah. whether it's in a pop-up sense, whether it's in experience stores, but it's such a golden opportunity for one of those really great place-making, experience-driven brick-and-mortar examples. Right, yeah, I mean, you talk about experiential retail, which is you know, the word is used to death, but you know, it's very you know, applicable, but like, you know, for a six-year-old, there's nothing more experiential than yeah. a toy store, yeah. right? Yeah. You can't, a six-year-old does not care about finding a toy on Amazon, right? They yeah. want to look at the toys, touch the toys, play Exactly. And the question is, how do you do that profitably, right? Mm-hmm. Because there needs to be an ROI to placemaking. There needs to be an ROI to experience. What do you tell a retail client or institutional client or someone when they say, like, I'm worried that it's just all going to be Amazon? And what's your answer for that when they think Amazon's too powerful? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, I think if we talk about online-only players in general, right, there's definitely fears online going to take over brick and mortar. That's the central fear that you're hitting on, right, that everyone's questioning. Is online going to take over brick and mortar? And therefore, what's the future for real estate? I, in all my research and all my playing with data and City Lab websites and all this stuff, I really challenge that assumption and I ask, well, couldn't brick and mortar take over online? Because right now what you have is a group of major online-only players and a group of major brick and mortar players and you can Name, name names, and you know who I'm talking about, right? And they both are rushing towards the same goal, which is to be the number one omni-channel player. Because at the end of the day, you have to be both. You can't just be one. I think they've, they've both sides have figured this out. We can't just be brick and mortar. We can't just be online. So we've got to get there somehow. And what that means is that the online players have to become real estate experts and store experts. And the brick and mortar players need to become logistics experts and technology experts. Mm-hmm. So different learning curves for both, um, but they're both having to, to do the same thing. So I think at the end of the day, the players who win, are, they're, they're going to look relatively similar. They're going to have different routes, um, but they're going to be truly omnichannel. They're going to have really sophisticated logistics and um, operational platforms. They have to. Uh, and, and I... I really challenge that assumption, you know, is, is online going to take over or couldn't it be the other way around? Mm-hmm. Online is still less than 11% of, um, of the overall retail sales today. And when you look at what constitutes online retail, over 50% of that is, is the online sales of brick and mortar brands, mm-hmm. right? So right now, it's not clear to me that online is going to take over brick and mortar. That's not clear to me. And, and if anything, online is becoming brick and mortar. Mm-hmm. Fair point. Um, I don't have two more questions for you, but I do want to ask because I think last time I talked, I remember you mentioned that you were watching a trend of like the technology body scanning for, I will always remember this conversation, uh, of like fashion companies scanning your body oh, yeah. and designing stuff. To, what, what happened to that? How come no one has scanned my body and, mm. and designed like pants? that are actually like a 34 and a half inch waist. <laughs> I will stand by what I said in 2016. Yeah. And that is definitely happening, it's happening. Look, I really do think that that, I think that is one potential solution to one of the biggest challenges in omnichannel retail, which is returns. Right. right online orders and returns. 
the returns it's what's crushing profit margins for retailers because you so if you're going to buy a pair of shoes online which i have done i will buy two sizes or three sizes and four colors and i'll try them on and i'll send the ones i don't want back because it's free and why wouldn't i right so when you give us the option as consumers of course we're going to exercise it why wouldn't we what that does is creates extraordinary costs for retailers. It creates an environmental waste issue because a lot of these things end up in landfills, not to mention the cardboard and plastic that gets dumped wherever it gets dumped, right? Like, we yeah. go on it. That's a whole other podcast. Um, <laughs> I'll be back. Um, but that kind of scanning or technology that allows you to know exactly what shoe size uh, or exactly what... You have it now, certain, and I, I don't know the names of the brands right now off the top of my head, but the ones where you can take photos um, you know, of your torso or you send measurements in and it gets tailor-made. I really do think that's coming. I think shoes will be one of the first places we see it uh, in, a, in a real meaningful way because it's so particular. Yeah. Um, you can see, you know, there are, I remember some Scandinavian startup years ago that won this massive award for uh, almost orthopedics, right? So you could scan your foot with your cell phone and then it would send in, uh, you send it in and it would come out with exactly the, the sort of inserts or orthopedic whatever's you need for your arch. Uh, and I think that that's a way that retailers can cut down on returns is, is making sure that the size is right, that the fit is right. So, you know, it, we may not have seen it in a large way since 2016, but I guarantee you there's investment in it. I guarantee you we will see. I'm sticking to my word. Yeah, I stick to what I said. I believe <laughs> I'm just waiting for me to walk into one of these stores and just like walk through like a metal detector type thing. Yeah. Come around, people start hanging me close. That's I mean, if I didn't have to try on clothes when I went to a store, great. You could just be like, oh, this is your size. Great. Perfect. Yeah. This is what it looks like on you. Uh, Macy's is still alive. Sears is hanging on by a thread. You know, Bloomingdale's is still, is still operating. So I don't... Uh, so I don't want to say, you know, department stores are going to be extinct, mm. but, you know, is that model just something that just is not going to, you know, like a new one without the established brand, I would say, just not going to work in the modern economy, or is there still, it has like the online replaced the one-stop shop, basically, mm. and now it just all has to be more segmented to succeed. So I don't think online has replaced it. The department store, the new department store is Target. The new department store is TJ Maxx. The new department store is... Ross and Burlington, right? The, that's the new department store. And so there's this myth in the marketplace that online is what killed the department store. Online was sort of like the tipping point, the straw that broke the camel's back. There was a lot of underlying movement and shifts that had been taking place in the market that was taking share from the department stores. And a lot of that came through the recession as you had pretty major growth in that discount off-price segment, whether it's Ross, Five Below, TJ Maxx, like those players really came into their own uh, as the economy was shifting and consumer attitudes towards spending changed. Then we got used to you know, discount off price and a, a getting a deal and, and paying full price or mid price didn't make sense as much anymore for soft goods. So um, I think that that older model of the department store, uh, it's not that it's dead, but it, it does need to adapt and change. I think that there's still potential for some of those players to reinvent themselves and, and do it if they have the will and the capital, um, but not all of them do. Well, thank you so much for taking the time. Well, thank you. Really this is fun. This is, this is a lot of fun. Thanks for the drink. Yeah, our <laughs> pleasure. Miriam Hall is the creator and executive producer of Let's Have a Drink. Its supervising producer is Mark Bonner. Travis Gonzalez is the audio editor.